Welcome. I'm Christy Balsells. I'm the Executive Director of MitoAction, and today is Friday, the 2nd of October, 2009, and we're here today with some members and as well as psychologist Carol Slipowitz and nurse coordinator and of the uh, Metabolism Clinic in Boston at Tufts Floating Medical Center for Children, Maggie Orr. And I'm really thankful to have you all here today because you each have experience with mitochondrial disease and I think also um, had the idea to talk about this topic, which is coping. How do you deal with mitochondrial disease? The diagnosis is the ambiguity, the uncertainty, the difficult prognosis. And so we're all just interested in talking about that and sharing resources. Why don't I start by asking you two to each tell us a little bit more about yourselves, and uh, then we'll get started right away on the topic. Okay. Um, I'm Maggie Orr. I'm the nurse coordinator in metabolism at the Floating Hospital for Children at Tufts Medical Center. Um, I've been here for almost five years, and before that I had about 10 years of experience with mitochondrial disease, um, and I'm really delighted to be here to talk about the issue of ambiguity and mitochondrial disorders um, with you, Christy, and also with members of MitoAction. Great. Thank you, Maggie. Carol, how about a little bit about yourself, too? Hi. Um, I'm a psychologist. I've been in practice for more than 20 years, and most recently in the past year or two, I've been a consultant to the Mito411 line, which has been a real privilege. Oh, well, thank you, Carol. And uh, let's go ahead and get started about the topic. Now, I understand the two of you are, are going to kind of piggyback on one another. So um, which one of you will go first? I can I, I can start. Okay, talking. go ahead, Maggie. Okay, I just will talk kind of generally about some of the sources of ambiguity in mitochondrial disease. Um, as you know, um, there are many challenges for patients and families that are living with this disorder. One of them is uncertainty. There are multiple areas of uncertainty in mitochondrial disease, including diagnosis, treatment, prognosis, lack of awareness of the disease in medical circles, and also in the broader community. Um, diagnosis itself can be a challenge. Patients often require multiple appointments over months, um, sometimes more than that, with possibly no definitive diagnosis, simply due to the limitations of current knowledge. In the majority of patients, a genetic change is not identified, so a patient often has multiple tests, which together can add up to a tentative diagnosis. But often, um, as you know, patients need to be evaluated in a referral center with experience in mitochondrial disorders. Um, and since those are not readily available in some areas of the country, that only prolongs the wait for a diagnosis. So, um, you know, patients can really be waiting for an extended period of time. And when you add in the lack of awareness in the medical community about mitochondrial disorders, that can mean that patients are not properly referred for months or possibly even years after symptoms appear. Um, and this commonly results in uncertainty and suffering for patients and families. Um, and in addition, there are often differences of opinion or approach between physicians who have experience with mitochondrial disease and the, those who do not. Um, and that can often end up with patients being sort of caught in the middle and forced to educate their healthcare <laughs> providers about the disease. So, for example, a family may have been told by their mitochondrial specialist that their child requires IV fluids earlier in the course of an infection, only then to be told by a physician in the ER that their child is not dehydrated and doesn't require IV hydration, um, which is, of course, you know, really frustrating for families. And those kinds of differences in opinion can multiply, you know, if a patient is admitted to an inpatient setting. And then often you'll have multiple services, you know, GI, neurology, metabolism, maybe infectious disease, um, that consult on a patient, and, you know, that can just kind of multiply the opportunities for conflict and misunderstanding between the various um, physicians and nurses that are involved in the patient's care, um, and that just leads to more uncertainty and doubt for families. Um, and then, of course, you know, you often are dealing with lack of awareness in the broader community so that families, I think, often feel like they're forced to prove themselves if their child is not obviously symptomatic. Whereas, you know, 
I mean, we know if a child is diagnosed with cancer, everyone knows what that means, right? And and the family typically gets a lot of support. Um, but mitochondrial disease is altogether different, and that can translate into questioning and doubt for the family members as well. So if a child looks well but, for example, needs to pace him or herself so as not to become overly fatigued, um, it can be hard to explain why that's important, you know, and that to, to friends and neighbors, um, which sometimes leads to parents doubting their own assessments and their own decisions and um, and then sometimes have a loss of confidence in their own parenting skills. Maggie, yes. I would say the same applies to the adults as well, that mm-hmm. um, in that case the adult patients um, don't have anyone else necessarily feeling that doubt that the child wouldn't feel that they feel the doubt themselves mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. they feel that others question them and that perhaps the doctors even question when they are they're self-reporting what other doctors said and so they're put in that position of feeling um, very much caught in the middle yep. while dealing with the symptoms right. as well. Right. Well, and I, I often feel like, you know, it, it's so difficult when patients are coping with a chronic disease because um, not only do they have the symptomatology of the disease, but they have the burden of advocacy, you know, and that's that's obviously very, very difficult. Um, and I, I think another area where you can have a lot of uncertainty is in the genetics of, of mitochondrial disease, which are very complicated. Um, and the mode of transmission is often sort of yet another source of uncertainty for families because um, when a genetic change is not identified, which is the case in many, if not most, patients, families can wonder who else in the family may be affected. Um, And since symptoms may vary in different family members and they may develop even into adulthood, families can be worried and uncertain then about whether other children may be affected and if asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic family members could pass on the disease to the next generation. Um, I mean, the hallmark, of course, of mitochondrial disease is fatigue, um, usually with, with multi-organ system involvement or symptoms in various parts of the body. But everyone has been fatigued, and many of the symptoms that can occur with mitochondrial disease are common, like migraine headaches, constipation, reflux, muscle pain, um, and so patients and families, you know, sometimes comb their family tree looking for possible symptoms, not knowing if they might be related to mitochondrial disease or not. Um, and I think it's very, very stressful for families to have to wait as mitochondrial medicine advances and more mutations are identified. Um, you know, genetic testing is really expensive, and one's physician may prefer to use a lab that doesn't necessarily contract with one's insurance company, assuming, of course, that one's insurance even covers the testing. So patients are, are, you know, sometimes requiring multiple genetic tests that are run over years um, before their genetic change is identified. Um, And then, you know, of course, mitochondrial medicine does advance, and so the knowledge does change over time, which I think can be yet another source of uncertainty because patients can be told conflicting things over the years. Um, and certainly there are patients that that may have been told at one time that their disease was assumed to be maternally transmitted, um, you know, being passed from the mother to, to the, the children. And so they naturally think that all the family members in the, their maternal line are affected or potentially affected. Um, but later on, sometimes, you know, patients then learn that that may not be the case for them. And that's, you know, frustrating and obviously has major implications for the family. Um, I think the variability of prognosis is, you know, yet another source of uncertainty because it's generally impossible to predict the course of the disease in any individual patient. Um, Even when a patient loses skills, for example, during an acute infection, they may gradually recover and regain the abilities that were temporarily lost. Um, But as we know, this can take weeks or even longer, and I think the not knowing during that time is extremely difficult um, for families. It's it's generally only in retrospect that one can say with certainty that disease progression has occurred. Um, And and sometimes we know that a very ill patient is able to regain some strength and do quite well, while another patient 
who originally might have seemed more robust develops an infection and then may have more rapid deterioration, which is, is obviously very confusing um, and painful for families. I, I often see you know, patients coming into clinic and they'll ask if, if a given symptom indicates um, that their disease or their child's disease has progressed and there's no clear answer, um, which is obviously really frustrating and there's a lot of kind of just not knowing you know, what is happening at any point in time. So, um, you know, I could, I mean, sort of any of these different areas, there's so many sources of ambiguity in coping with this disease. I feel like I could sort of go on and on about it. Um, but I know that Carol has some suggestions about coping with it. And I'm also kind of hoping that we can have time to take calls, you know, take questions from callers about their own experiences. Absolutely. Thank you, Maggie. So, and we will have time to do that. So, Carol, we'll we'll pass the torch to you to talk a little bit then. Okay. So, my focus is just going to be on getting through the days. Um, It's very hard to live in a state of chronic stress. And whether we're caregivers or whether we're the adults with MITO, we really need to think about what our priorities are that, Self-care is really important, Um, and we do have, we may not have any control over the illness, but we do have some control over the ability, our own ability to take care of ourselves, to remember what the things are that we love in life and um, who the people are, who we can connect with, and um, things that have helped to make us feel better in the past. Some of them we'll be able to do, and some of them we may need to do in a modified way, um, and we may look need to look for some new things. Um, one thing, I, I want to just throw out a whole bunch of different suggestions about things that people can do, and later on it may be that some of the people listening will also um, have their own contributions. Um, one thing that's very cheap and easy Um, is to do some kind of relaxation or meditation. And as I was preparing for today, one of the things that I did was go to YouTube.com, and there are all kinds of audios and videos um, with very nice, soothing voices and beautiful pictures. A lot of them are, say, about six minutes long, and you can just... Um, put in the search box for YouTube um, the word relaxation. There's some a few videos that I like very much that if you put relaxation therapy in the search box, you'll see there's one called tranquility, there's one called inner peace, there's one called soul washing, and they would take six minutes to watch and you know can really just help with people's um, mood and centering themselves. Um, another thing that I've discovered, and also there are many resources on the web, is that there's not yet a whole lot about coping with having mitochondrial disease, but there is a very large literature about coping with chronic illness. And there are all kinds of books and articles. And later on, I can add to the Mito Action site um, some of the titles of these books. Um, other things are um, written on the Mito site. There's a couple of Mito Action articles. One is called Coping with Your Child's Diagnosis, and one of them is called Parent and Patient, which I think are both really good to look at. Um, There's a radio show that has podcasts, which is called Speaking of Faith. Um, If you just do a Google search and type in Speaking of Faith, there are some wonderful programs to listen to. Again, not specifically about Mido, but about um, healing, about taking care of yourself, taking care of children. There's one called Listening Generously by Rachel Naomi Remen. There's another one called Heart and Soul with Dr. Oz. There's one called Spirituality of Parenting and one called Inner Lives of Children. Um, 
Another thing also is to do whatever you can to get humor into your life, rent funny movies, develop a little library of books, cartoons, things that have made you laugh in the past that you could look at again. Um, And also doing whatever you can to make the environment that you're in beautiful. And if the environment you're in is just one room and you can't really get out of that room, you can still think about posters of beautiful places that you could put on your walls, having a screensaver on your computer that is a beautiful picture that makes you feel good. Um, And also to think about the people who are in your lives and to make an effort to reach out to and ask for help from those people who have shown over time that they are people who are able to accept and love and care about you and to be positive and genuinely helpful and listen and to think about trying to minimize the amount of time you spend with people who don't make you feel good, who, you know, when you say goodbye to them, you realize you feel worse than you did um, when you started. There are also some other support organizations um, and places on the web where you can create websites and read other people's websites like caringbridge.org, which is a wonderful way to connect family and friends. Um, So I think that's all I'm going to say for now because I, I suspect that other people will have things to contribute and that we can just have a discussion this point. Mm-hmm. I agree, Carol. And I'm going to, this is Christine, I'm going to jump in and just add a couple um, things before we open the discussion. I think that it's important that um, <clears throat> when you are f- facing the diagnosis at any point, that it's okay to acknowledge that there is grief. That when you, um, either your child has been diagnosed with mitochondrial disease or as an adult you are facing the diagnosis of mitochondrial disease and that, you know, scary prognosis is is kind of you're looking down the road. You don't, you have a certain amount of grief that you will go through. And I think that it is um, widely underestimated in our mitochondrial disease community and in the medical population, the impact of that grief because as a parent, you may be grieving the loss of the dreams you had for your child's life. It, everything has been shifted. As an adult, you may be grieving the loss of what you expected your future to be like, or if you are you know, a spouse or someone else in the family, what you expected your future together to be like. And so um, there's there's grief that is part of the process. And I think that you just have to recognize and give um, yourself or the people around you who are going through that the time that it takes to move through that grief. Um, Carol, there are stages of grief. I wonder if, what you thought about that and, and how that happens when someone has faced um, – they're, they're not facing death, but they're facing something now that they're going to have to mm-hmm. change their life and live with forever. Yeah. It's funny that you said that, Christy, because I'm actually looking right now at an article that I found um, on the web called Coping with Chronic Illness by Joanne Lamaistre, L-E-M-A-I-S-T-R-E, and she wrote a book called After the Diagnosis. And she talks about a few different stages. And, of course, these stages aren't, you know, it's not like you finish one and then you're completely done and then you go on to the other but she talks about there being a first stage of being in crisis. Um, and that's usually like a really busy stage where you're doing a lot and other people may be rallying around you, but it's it's short because um, you kind of can't stay in that crisis stage for all that long. And then after that, often there's a period of real isolation. You can get just totally exhausted during that crisis stage and – um, you know, this isn't something that's going to go away after a month or six months of healing, and then there's going to be a cure. Um, then she talks about there being a stage of anger, which is really just inevitable. I mean, 
you really can't escape it. Um, experiencing fear and anger and depression and anxiety is normal in the situation where you're losing a certain level of functioning, a certain kind of competency or ability to do things that you used to be able to do and you don't know, you don't have what um, Lumetra calls an expectable future. She says no one's future is ever guaranteed, but most people get accustomed to thinking, well, you know, if I try hard and invest my energies a certain way, I'll probably reach a certain goal. But, you know, this illness just really throws a big curve in that, and it's very, very hard to just not know what's going to be happening. Um, Then she goes on to talk about a stage of reconstruction, and what she says about that is that it's not like life is like what it was before the illness, but more that it's a reconstruction of the sense of yourself um, that you are, um, the way she puts it is a sense of yourself as a cohesive, intact identity. And after that, there's going to be periods, intermittent periods of depression, and there will also be what she talks about as being a stage of renewal. Um, and, you know, I won't go into all of the different areas, but... Um, there, there are just so many strong emotions and strong negative emotions that we have to figure out, we have to find safe places and times to express them. There are obviously going to be times where you're with a certain person or in a certain situation where you know that you can't express them and you may have to put on a kind of Pollyanna-ish face that um, you know, is not the whole of who you are. But I, I think one of the hard parts is figuring out a balance of when and where we can express our most difficult feelings, knowing that we'll have other times when we'll be feeling better. Um, and um, you just kind of have to roll with it and you don't don't always know Um when it's going to hit you, when it's not going to hit you, when you feel better than you thought you would, and when you feel worse than you thought you would. I think moving through those stages is especially challenging if, because with mitochondrial disease, um, two factors apply. One, you are dealing with unpredictable symptoms all mm-hmm. the time. And number two, there's not a team around you mm-hmm. that is saying, okay, well, Step one is this, and step mm-hmm. two is this, and all you need to do is show up at these times, and we'll take it from there. And instead, you are, you're creating your own game plan, whether it's for you or your child, and having to execute it, and dealing with the grief, and dealing with the symptoms, and dealing with the insurance company, <laughs> and not sleeping at night, and it's enough to really be exhausting no matter who you are. So mm-hmm. um, on that note, how about we open up the um, lines and we get some discussion going. Sounds good. Okay, so uh, bear with me. Uh, You're going to hear a couple beeps. Okay, so we're all um, unmuted now, and we'll just take turns, and you can um, just introduce yourself if you have a comment or a question, and we can talk about it. Hi, Carol. Um, This is Sue, and I'm just wondering if you could give me the name of that article again, Coping With. Sure. Actually, I can tell you where to find it. Oh, that'd um, be great. Just go to www.alpinegild, A-L-P-I-N-E-G-U-I-L-D.com. Okay. And then you click on the name of her article, which is Coping with Chronic Illness. Okay. Thank, thank you very much. Mm-hmm. You're welcome. And, Carol, let's uh, plan to put all these resources that you've mentioned on the website Absolutely. as well, mm-hmm. on this page, so that that will make it really easy to find the books and so forth that you mentioned. But um, but feel, anyone, feel free to ask her to clarify the things she mentioned right now in case you're interested in looking at it before I get a chance to put those things up on this website next week. Um, other comments or questions? Anybody? Um, 
Christy, I just, this is Ellen. I just wanted to say that one of the things that I think is really helpful, I have found helpful, um, and, and I also have found it helpful to um, convey this to people to, to better understand. We're talking about the issue about lack of awareness, and, and um, I, can't, I can't remember the name of it, but it's on the Mito Action website, and, and it's you speaking and sort of referring to cancer. And I think that's such a good analogy because, you know, on, you, you, I don't remember verbatim what you say, but something to the effect of, you know, unlike cancer where people rally, rally around you and you're hoping for a cure and that you're going to get better, you know, that, that, that it's so different with mitochondrial disease. And I think that that really helped me, and I think it helped people that I directed to see that video. It's just, I think, really, really useful. Um, I know the video you're speaking of, Ellen, and thanks for sharing that. And if, if you haven't seen that, it's if you go to the MitoAction homepage and then under the header that says um, awareness on on the primary page of that one, that's, that video um, there is just kind of profiles from different people with mitochondrial disease, and it talks about it. <laughs> and, I actually uh, wanted to mention something else on the website, which I think is really wonderful. Um, if you go to the section Living with Mitochondrial Disease and then click on Personal Stories, you'll see Brianna Kuchers' uh, YouTube video where she talks about what it's like to have an invisible disability where you know people will say, you don't look sick. And it's just, I think that's just such a nice thing to give to someone in your life who doesn't understand. It's so well done. Mm-hmm. I agree with that. That's, mm-hmm. um, that's great. So uh, other, other questions and comments? Yeah, so I'd like to add, this is Beth. I could talk myself till I'm blue in the face to friends and family with information. I can present information I have over the years and it has gotten me absolutely nowhere. I get no support whatsoever. I could show them videos, which I have. I give them the names of the foundations. I give them information, just everything, like literally talk blue in the face, and I still get no response back. Where do you think is the disconnect? That's where. What do you think... Are they? Oh, uh, I have complete denial on my side of the family, and I don't know if people are scared or what they are. I don't know. I wish I knew. And and that's, you know, incredibly frustrating, too. Um, Oh, no. And I'm going through a grief period of the death of my daughter, so that compounds it ten times as much. And I think, you know, back to what Carol was saying, the, the importance of support and connecting with people that do make you feel good versus, you know, people that don't, you know. And, I, and I, you know, it's admirable to try to, to promote awareness and to reach out to those people that are probably very important people in your life and I'm sure very painful um, to not get that support that you need. And I, I know personally I, I have been very disappointed in some friends that really just don't get it and don't understand and have made, you know, pretty hurtful comments. And I have just found, like through Mito Action and other other things, um, other people who are just much more supportive. That it's it's just, you need that support, and it's just important to 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 reach out so you can get support from people that really can provide it to you. Thank you. I I I would kind of piggyback on that, and Maggie, Carol, feel free to jump mm-hmm. in also. But mm-hmm. I think I would say that uh, you, in some ways, um, may you redefine your life in a lot of different aspects, and that includes um, friends and, unfortunately, sometimes family as well. Because um, if you start the day and you've got 10 bars of battery, and that's whether you're a parent kind of doing this for your child or you are an adult patient or both, if you've got 10 bars of battery to do everything in the day, then are we going to waste four of those? (laughs) having an encounter with someone who, you know, makes you feel like you're banging your head against the wall, it's, it's you no longer have the luxury to have those relationships that don't give back to you. And so you have to redefine some of those relationships. And that's a very stressful kind of proposition also because sometimes the people who are supposed to be there to support you through church or through your family aren't the people who support you and you have to start over in some ways. Any other thoughts about that? Um, This is Carrie. Um, 
I it what you had mentioned, Beth, is that it, it reminded me so much of when I was actually trying to first get diagnosed, and I had gone through physician after physician after physician, and I'd reached a point in my life where I truly felt as though almost my identity had been stripped from me, um, and I became almost this um, awkward, submissive patient trying to go in and please the physician so that I could get the right answer and do all the right things and say all the right things. And I finally, I was very blessed and fortunate to to meet the right doctor um, down the road. But what I realized is that I I, I truly had to find uh, a a strength within myself to say, you know what, they may not, I've met physicians, I've had friends, and I've even had family that have rejected this whole idea. And now even particularly with my 14-year-old being diagnosed, um, they almost feel as though I'm imposing it upon him. But to have that sense in yourself to say that you, you know, only you know your body, only you know what you're going through, and to have the strength to say, you know what, it's not, it's not my problem if you don't understand. I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to be strong within myself, and I'm going to reach out to people like Christy and the Mito Action Group and all these people that are on the line that would be so willing to be there for you. And it's um, it's almost like you can create your own new source of friends and family. But I, you know, it was very hard to not lose who I was as a person, and you know, I doubted myself over and over again. But um, to find that strength within yourself to say, you know what, I know I have this. I know what's going on, and take good care of yourself. Thanks for jumping in there. Um, this is Carol again. I, I just want to um, acknowledge that it it does happen, unfortunately, too much that family members either don't accept our need to say that, you know, we don't have the energy to do something or um, in some way disbelieve us or show lack of concern and you know sometimes this relates to just how well our family was functioning before we even had a diagnosis and you know we may have pre-existing problems with our families or pre-existing family members who were never very good at listening and are going to continue to disappoint us and so I agree Family is particularly tough because you probably will not completely cut off contact with a family member, even though you might do that with someone who is previously a friend. Um, But it is important to strike a balance of spending as much time as you can with people who are genuinely helpful and to minimize the amount of time that you spend with people who aren't helpful. One suggestion that people have sometimes found useful is to either write or tape record an honest and perhaps very angry message to your family, but then just throw it away or erase the tape. Just kind of get it out of your system, but not necessarily communicate that if you've gotten to the point where you realize you've tried very, very, very hard and it hasn't worked. You have to kind of reach that point where you say, okay, you know, this hasn't worked so far and maybe it's just not going to work. I actually did go to the point of writing that and sending it to two family members and had no contact for two years until the day of my daughter's wake. Um, so I did have to go through with my own good. And still to this day, since the wake... And it just goes back to the same way as it was. And then they expect me to show up to all of their family functions, but yet no one mentions the disease or mentions Abby's name. So I have no idea how to handle this anymore. I'm out of ideas. I'm out of energy. I don't. I'm. I am just out of everything right now. My best well, suggestion to I don't, you is, I don't really expect any answers to that because I know there's not an answer. I'm just, that mm-hmm. that was what I had to do at the time, and it's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. 
This is Jean, and my best suggestion to you is to reach out to others uh, in the uh, mitochondrial community who understand and um, talk it out there. Um, you can re- lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink and accept that they're not going to accept and move on. I, I had to do that. It's just extremely frustrating that I had to go through that. And then all the while, my daughter is was severely ill at the point of, you know, ba- basically at the point of death at any day for two years straight. And then I have no contact with two, two sisters until the day of her wake. It's just, it's I, I just can't. I don't know. It sounds as if you're the grief that you are facing both about your daughter and your disease has is not being validated by any of those people in your family and and that probably just makes you feel more alone because they aren't acknowledging um the grief that you're experiencing much less helping you to in any way to get through it and i um I know that that must be just really exhausting for you on top of dealing with your symptoms. It is, and it's now I'm in a bad depression right now. Do you have a good do you have good um like medical support with your physician or with a counselor? Well, I see a therapist once a week. Yeah. That's good. I mean, that's a to stay in contact with someone who can support you in that way, especially through your grief. I think that we all need to once in a while kind of back up and and if no one else is there to give you a pat on the back and say, you know, the fact that you deal with this all the time and you and you still manage to fight these other battles, you're really amazing. And if no one else is saying that to you, then um I'm saying it to you. And I also think for all of us, sometimes you need to find each other in this mitochondrial disease community, which is a, a big reason why mitoaction exists, or sometimes do it for yourself. You remind yourself that you're an amazing person facing incredible challenges, and you can only do the best you can do. Um, rethinking the expectations, I think, is another piece that I wanted to bring up to to talk about a bit, and Maggie and Carol, if you have any input on that, is that the expectations um, that are placed upon you as a parent or you as a patient or you as an adult who is supposed to be responsible for certain things um, sometimes are more than you can take when you already have so much to deal with. And it's difficult to help understand how you can realign those expectations both for yourself and for others. Um, Maggie, do you have any thoughts about that? We've talked a little bit about that before. Well, you know, I'm I'm thinking about how hard it can be for adults, you know, sort of that are used to, you know, functioning at a certain level and, and you know, maybe being professional people, maybe not. Um, but it's it's very hard to ask for help. And, and... It's also really hard to receive help, and I think that um, if it's possible for you know to to reach out to others um, to do so, you know, it's not you know it's it's never easy, and of course you know one will find that there are you know, the people in one's own community or family will respond in different ways, but you know as Carol pointed out, when people are supportive and are able to provide either, you know, emotional support or or concrete kinds of assistance. Um, you know, I, th- I think it's important to kind of to get that wherever you can. I'll throw in there that um, MitoAction hosts a, a teleconference that is for different groups of folks on every Friday. So the second Friday of the month is for parents, I'm sorry, for newly diagnosed um, patients, and that's self-qualified. If no, no matter where you are in the process, if you feel like you're still newly diagnosed, and then for both parents and adult patients and family members, the third Friday of the month is for um, parents 
only, and then for the fourth Friday of the month is for adults. And either myself or Carol or Ann Recklin, who's also a psychologist, um, host those groups, and it's really not as structured as today with having a specific topic, but more of an opportunity just to be in a community of people who understand what it means to be facing um, so many challenges and who are willing to listen. And I, I just wanted you know, to second that suggestion. I think that the Friday meetings are a wonderful opportunity, and there's just nothing like being able to talk to someone who gets it, mm-hmm. someone that you don't have to explain what the disease is that you have, how it affects you, how hard it was to deal with your insurance company or your doctor. It's it's very hard when you're dealing with other people who don't have a clue, and you can't not have those people in your life, but it's just priceless to have the people who you don't have to explain it to who already know what you mean, and you don't have to spend hours and hours just in hopes of getting them a little bit up to speed of what it really means. Um, it's Ken Graham here. Hi, Ken. How are you doing? Good. Um, I just had my thunder stolen by uh, <laughs> everybody who mentions about, you know, getting involved with the community uh, because most of them, including, you know, Mito Action, which I'm going to say right here is, I believe, the best of the best out there. It's the most consumer-friendly uh, uh, for Mito people. But belonging to a group, you uh, you can be family with the group because you can open up and you can rant or rave or whatever. Uh, you can, you know, express what's on, on your mind. And you're not going to get somebody at the other the other end thinking, um, this is weird. I mean, just what was said, we get understood by those who have the same uh, situation going on in their life. That's, I really, you. I really, you know, think that you, uh, for most people, you can't cope with with uh, with being alone. That you've got to belong to some group or. Uh, you know, some community to get that support. Ken, I think that's so great, too, because uh, this is Carrie, and I live in Orchard Park, New York, and uh, the medical community where I am um, is, I I feel just a bit behind the times. So Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes when I um, end up in the ER or things like that, I'm often asked to spell mitochondrial myopathy. And um, it's just, it, 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 for me, it was such a wonderful um, opportunity to connect with Christy and to, when you feel like you're not alone, you're. It's so. It's it's just the validation is um, can do wonders for your heart and soul, mm-hmm. and uh, because this is not, this illness isn't a smooth narrative with a beginning and a finish. It's circuitous. It's always you know up and down and up and down and too true. And uh, so to be able to um, to have people is just remarkable. This is Carol. I just wanted to comment that it's such a different process. Somebody earlier mentioned talking until I'm blue in the face. It's such a different process to talk and talk and talk and try and try and try to get the other person to understand and not be successful. And what that does is make you feel worse. On the other hand, what I've seen is that when you talk and talk and talk to the right people and you keep going with talking, instead of feeling worse, you end up laughing about something. You know, you end up talking about the ridiculous aspects of different things that happen, and you feel so much better. Mm-hmm. Exactly. There are times when... Uh, some of the adults in the, the mitochondria community on uh, Saturday mornings get together and we just uh, chat. And uh, often as not, there's no mention of mitochondrial disease at all. We just talk about our lives and what's going on. And it's a camaraderie that's um, kind of like what you would normally expect to have um, if you were living a normal life. Um. 
I wanted to throw out and see if anyone had any discussion. I'm hearing some feedback, so if you guys are also, I am too. I am too. Yeah, we all are. I'm not quite sure how to resolve that, so I apologize. Um, but I think that sometimes having the challenge of whether or not you're going to be open about the disease or not for your child or for yourself is another way that um, either makes it easier or more difficult to cope. And people have very personal decisions about that, but I wondered if um, Carol, Maggie, or anyone else on the call had any strong thoughts about that. Well, if you don't have a lot of time and you know that an interaction is going to be short, it may not be worth it. I guess that's one thing that I would say. And you also have to come to an assessment of the maturity and ability to listen of the other person. And and also how much energy you have at the time. Good point. You know, like, I, I mean, when when Christy was talking earlier about how many bars are in your battery, you know, or, or sometimes people talk about how many spoons they have, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's sometimes it may or may not be worth it, you know, if you can kind of stand to do it all that day. I'd like to say something here, Christy, if I may. This is Kirsten. Go ahead, Kirsten. Um, having two children with mitochondrial disease, two teen, well, now 16 and 20, uh, one of the things that, that I have found from a parenting position is, especially when trying to educate or just trying to educate family, be it school systems, be it whomever it may be, the first the first reflection that we would always run into was, oh, but they're so beautiful. They look so wonderful. They can't possibly be this, though. They can't possibly be this complicated. And it's very interesting. The message that my children was receiving from that is, well, maybe I'm not. Maybe I am. Could I be? Am I bringing this on? You know, Mm -hmm. how much of this am I controlling? How much of it is controlled? And then, you know, you would see physicians, and you'd have one physician saying, it's absolutely this. And the next physician was, well, I call that paraphenomenal. So you stand as a parent, as I'm listening to these other adults with Mito, I look at it from a different perspective as a parent just raising two kids, saying to myself, you know, I looked at the kids at one point and I said, look, we can't, we can't cure this. We can't make this go away. So we're going to choose to not live in survival mode because we look at it as a, as a family as if you're in survival mode, that rug can get pulled out from you at any moment. So our mantra is, is we're not going to survive, Mito. We're going to live it. So when these detours get thrown at us, when we get a family member as close to even my own mother at one point went to her family physician and said, oh, both my grandchildren have mitochondrial disease. This is an intelligent man. He said, well, they don't have that, that you can't call it that. It's one of these other things. So, of course, my mom calls me, and I call. I, I, I'm like, let me talk to your physician. Let me educate him. And to which I got an astounding response of a man saying, I stand corrected. I apologize. Thank you for informing mm-hmm. me. Send me more information. But when you're a parent and you're an advocate and you're a medication giver and you're the cook and you're the vacation planner, and you're, when all of these titles get held into one person, I call it saying carrying the burden. When you do that, you also are standing in the perspective of trying to cope with the disease and the dreams that you had for your children and saying as a parent, I I can't allow them to not dream because that's part of the success in life. So if we live in live mode and not live in survival mode, we're hopefully going to make better decisions as a family to move together as a unit. And, you know, on on the days that one of my children is just wiped out and exhausted, I can step back and say, that that's today. That's today. So we're going to cope with that symptom at this moment. But as you're caught up in it over the years that I've been, which is 19 now, I, I step back and I think, this disease is still in its infancy. It's, it's 27, 30 years old, and we have come so far in the mitochondrial world to where I was 10 years ago with it. And I look at the tremendous progress of organizations like MitoAction and the Yahoo and the talk groups and everything else. It's coming, and I guess my message here would be today is we need to educate physicians on both coasts, coast to coast, mm-hmm. as to the appearance and the differences, and it is about education, but coping with it 
is not letting it get to a point in your life where you're not living. It, you, you have to keep moving forward. You have to keep making the best positive choice for the time. And, and I just think it's imperative that parents at least understand you can be given a, devasta- a devastating diagnosis, but it's, it's if you choose to walk with it and realize, you know, make your own level of expectation of, okay, is this a realistic goal? It is. Okay, stepping forward. And, yeah, we have to step back as parents. But you have, you have to have a progression because if you stagnate, you end up sometimes feeling very alone. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, can I say something about that? Sure. sure. This is Rhea, and um, I find that, you know, the difficulty is one of the last phrases you said, which is setting a realistic goal. Because, mm-hmm. you know, my illness is has been really active progressing, and I no longer have the capacity to figure out what a realistic goal is. That's the core issue for me right now. And I don't know, and maybe Maggie, if you want to um, comment on this, it's like I'm not sure what even to, like is there a way that my doctors can help me assess this? I mean, because they don't, I don't know if they know either but I wonder, with the rate at which I feel like I'm progressing, maybe they know more than me. I don't know. I don't know how to assess this. You mean, you mean a goal in terms of kind of sort of a functional goal? I mean, like in terms yes. of what you can do during the day? Yes. Have Have you, have you? Um, I mean, I have no idea about sort of your level of disability or or whatever, because as we know, you know, patients are all over the map about that, but. Um, have you sat down and had a, a very frank discussion with, you know, with the team that's following you um, about sort of what's realistic for you on a day-to-day basis? I tried to broach that about a specific activity, and uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't. Maybe I need to just try again and have it more structured and focused. Have you uh, maybe I need to be more clear with them about what I'm really asking. Yeah. I mean and and you know what it may be being clear with yourself about what what information you need and what kind of assessment might be helpful for you. Mm-hmm. And if I might if I might just add one other piece. When I was talking about realistic goal, I was I was being very subjective to life goal from a parenting position of, of two children. When I meant realistic goal, I didn't mean the act of getting up every day and feeling the energy of whether I can or I can't. It's, okay, my son wanted to go to college. We knew that during the day going to college for him was going to be very difficult because of his fatigue level. So what was the realistic goal? That was to get him into school. How could we do it? Let him sleep all day and go at night. And then it's it's a it's a mini success for us because there was I'm talking about a life goal. There was a realistic goal we could reach toward and help him attain. So he still is getting the opportunity, but he's doing it differently than most would his age. But it's still there. And and so if I if I meant if or if what was insinuated that I meant like daily goals, I was more talking global life goals. And Rhea, this is this is Carrie. I I think I understand what kind of what you're dealing with because um, I used to have long stretches of well periods, and then uh, you know so there would be great peaks and then little valleys that would last a long time. Well, now there's longer valleys than there are greater peaks, mm-hmm. and it's you know. I kind of went through the sort of the same anxiety of like well, what what's going on here what what should I expect is my body breaking down is this going to get worse and and a lot of times the response that I would get um, is back guys just keep muddling through is that is that background noise too much sorry noise is pretty intense yeah yeah I'm sorry oh there it seems to be better now. Where I, I'm emailing with customer service trying to get them to fix it. But oh, I think it went away, actually. Well, 
<laughs> Sorry about that. Keep meddling through. <laughs> no, no. I, I just think that you know, I when I went to my physician, you know, a lot of the, which I think was an appropriate response, was that I needed to find the level that was most comfortable for me. The mm-hmm. only problem was, and that was that was kind of frustrating and depressing, was that I felt like my level kept getting lower and lower and lower and lower, and so. I was always struggling with that, you know, I can't, I can't find my baseline anymore. Mm-hmm. And where I used to be able to, like I would say, oh, the summers are easy and the winters are horrible, you know. And, um, and now it, it is kind of accepting my new baseline is much, much more difficult. And rather than peaks and valleys over months, it's peaks and valleys maybe sometimes even throughout a day. And, I, you know, I, I really um, am very, a firm believer in my counselor that I see is a great source um, because I, I find that when I stopped being able to be the super mom and being able to do everything and the laundry and, the, and I didn't fit that role anymore and people started treating me differently and they were almost frustrated with me and a, a counselor had said to me once, well, oftentimes when you change your role, it makes everybody else uncomfortable. You know, they're like, wait a minute, what happened? Who's going to do the laundry and the dishes and the and the cleaning and, the, and you know, reaching out for help and everybody having to sort of adjust their roles in the house. Um, it's, it's an awkward time, but it can be done. And um, there's lots of, I think, little tricks and ways to do it. It's just you have to find what's comfortable for yourself. So it sounds like you're saying that you you – you found you kind of went to you reduced your expectations of what kind of level of function you had and that when you did that you started to feel more peaceful about your life i did i did and you know i i actually even asked my husband to stop asking me every day how i was feeling uh-huh because it, you know i really i really started to um just loathe having to say, well, you know, I just I feel awful today, <laughs> you know, and and day after day, because I didn't want to have that thought process all the time. I would rather have thought like, you know what, today I I did do the laundry, and I'm really glad I did the laundry today, you know, and it it became about right and actually making lists of, you know, today I, uh, you know, I did yoga today, or you know, and and actually I could then see much better rather what I wasn't doing, but actually what I was accomplishing during a day. And I was doing a lot more than I actually perceived because I think I just spent way too much time focusing on I'm not, I'm not running anymore. I'm not, you know, I'm not able to do X, Y, and Z anymore. But if I stopped doing that and then I focused, well, you know what, today I did the laundry and I went to Dick's Sporting Good and returned to Winter Coat and now I'm going to come home and eat some lunch and take a nap, you know. I felt better. I did. I, I lowered my expectations a bit. And I, I think it's, although something that, you know, not many people would like to hear, I think it's I think it's a reasonable thing when, you know, I, I still hold out hope that perhaps a, a peak will come back for me and I'll, I'll have a, a really great well spell. But for now, I'm, I'm just adjusting. This is Carol. I just wanted to make a comment. Um, I was struck by something you said, Carrie, about I didn't want to have that thought process. Yes. There's some times that you can kind of see the the path you could be going down and you could be starting to think about all the things that you can't do anymore or all things that are true. <laughs> and yet it takes an incredible presence of mind to say, you know what, I don't want to go there. It's not going to be helpful for me to follow this process. And, you know, I don't have any magic answers about how people achieve um, being able to live in the moment and focus on the present as opposed to thinking too much about the past or the future. But I just know that when you're able to have the presence of mind to kind of turn away from the thoughts that you know are going to lead you to feel worse, it's it's great when you can do that. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I don't. I understand what you're saying. The thought issue, you know, I've been meditating for 25 years and often very intensively, and I don't feel like I get real stuck in in difficult thinking because of that. 
But I think, um, you know, and living in the moment is pretty much what meditation is all about. Mm -hmm. There is this other level of life where, you know, for example, um, my partner and I are thinking, well, he's thinking about buying a home. I live on disability, so I can't afford it. But, well, you know, that means you kind of have to start thinking about, uh, well, you know, if I move to this place and um, I'm housebound, will I be close enough to my friends? And so it's really sort of, you know, really having to plan life a little bit, you know, if you're thinking about moving, you know, it raises a lot of issues. There are, I mean, there are just times where you kind of have to, right. you have to think about, well, would this be good for me to do or not? And, you know, several years ago, based on the idea of sort of playing to my lowest common denominator so that, you know, I didn't, I chose a new way of working. I mean, I, I haven't worked full time, you know, since I was 20, but, um, you know, just to earn a little bit of money on the side and to have a, you know, a feeling of that little bit more of engagement with the world. And I chose a profession that I could do at home, flexible hours, lying in bed, because I can use my computer lying in bed. And I thought, well, that's playing to my lowest common denominator. Then I started to have more cognitive problems, and I couldn't do the thought processes that were on the computer. And I never anticipated uh, that I would have cognitive issues like that. So it's, um, you know, it's like, you know, I I went through that process of regrouping, and now it's like I have to regroup again. Which right. I guess is, I, I think that's what what this illness feels like it's all about to me. It's not like, it's a, it's constant regrouping. But Rhea, I, you know, I, I, one thing that I've found is that oftentimes when I've, this is Carrie again, by the way, but when I've often, oftentimes found myself where I was like, it, 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 sort of at the level like you're describing like boy I never thought that I would have the cognitive issues and um and I had to stop a, a a job that I absolutely loved and um in a hospital and but I when I reached out to my physicians and I pushed the envelope with them and I said I need you to help me figure this is what's going on and then they you know I often found like I was sometimes really pleasantly surprised and they would say hey, you know what i'm going to send you for you me the other phone a quick, scan please? or something of to to some effect <clears throat> what was going on and then sometimes um a change of medication may have helped some, sometimes the the answers were simple um and and so i i definitely don't sit back and say okay well this is where i'm at i i trust me cuz i i really do i get i get with my physicians and i say okay look I've I've now hit a point where I kind of feel like I'm at a bottom and I don't want to be here. What can you do to just help elevate me just a little bit? I still keep my expectations in a good place, so I'm pleasantly surprised if something good happens. But I would I'd go to my physicians and as Maggie had said, and I would regroup with them and I would say, "This is what this is what I'm most challenged with, and these are the things that are in my future." You all right, Bob? Hello. <coughs> Are you all right? Oh, uh, my phone just crashed. Okay. Sorry, Carrie. Keep Talking going. about cognitive issues in my. <laughs> <laughs> Everything runs out of batteries eventually. <laughs> <laughs> it's a mitophone. phone. <laughs> right. That's right. So it's actually one twenty, and I think um, Carol and Maggie, if you have any um, closing comments, we can. Um, let you all go and thank you for your time today. Any closing thoughts after this wonderful discussion? I, I guess I just want to um, say that I'm I'm always so impressed to hear how patients deal. You know, I mean the kind of the coping skills that people bring to very challenging life situations. You know, whether that's adults dealing with disease or parents you know, trying to help their kids. And it's I always really find it quite inspiring. So thank you for allowing me to be part of the discussion. I feel the same way. It's just, it's really been a privilege to just be part of this discussion. And um, it's obvious that 
um, you all have so many resources to help each other. So I appreciate it. Well, thank you, both of you, for um, for joining us today and sharing you. your experience and expertise and and also um, being willing to kind of get the conversation going also because it's it's important, I think, to lay out the issues sometimes that um, folks don't always want to admit that exist. And I don't mean the patients or the parents, but sometimes just the community at large doesn't mm-hmm. want to admit that these that you even have these struggles. And so um, part of what we hope to do is, is just face that. So thank you. So thank you. Let, You're welcome. Thank okay, you. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. I'll let them say goodbye, and um, we can continue to talk. So bear with me just one moment. <laughs> 